welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. This week I'm talking to children's author and martial arts expert Mary Stevens. Mary, whose books are written under the name MC Stevens, has the very definition of a portfolio career. Her main role is as a karate and self-protection teacher, but among other things, she's also a fitness instructor and a patron of reading for a high school. Somehow, amongst all of this, she's managed to write a series of children's books. Mary and I first met at an author's event at her publisher, OUP, and we've been working together ever since. Her first book, which is about a pair of warrior monkeys, was published in June 2019. A second book quickly followed, and the latest addition to the series, Warrior Monkeys and the Rescue Quest, is published on the 5th of November. Mary, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'm going to jump straight in and kick off by going back to your childhood. Mm -hmm. You were born and raised on the Isle of Wight and were the second of three girls. Tell us what life was like. Wow, it's a lovely place to grow up. I really love the island and I, you know, I love it still. And my dad was a GP. My my mum's a practice nurse, so a medical family. My primary school was way up on the hill overlooking the sea. And I have really happy memories of being there and the first days of learning to read and so on. Sounded pretty idyllic. Mm. From when we were chatting before we recorded today, you were saying that you were absolutely desperate to learn to read. Yes, very much so. I was the annoying child, having been a school teacher as well, that having that one child that is just so overexcited. In those days, we learned with flashcards. And so they had to put me out of the flashcards game because I was just shouting out before they'd even finished lifting it up. <laughs> so I was kept aside to start on the reading and just got so excited, so into it. I used to be then sent down to the older classrooms to go and take reading books from there um, so that they could uh, keep up with how voraciously I wanted to read. Wow, super keen. It was super keen, very much so. It's something that we see less of now, I think, which is really interesting. And so you st- we still do have a lot of voracious readers, and I know you meet a lot in your work with schools. But having tablets and media really affects young children so that there's less space for boredom and less room for reading generally. I do think it's something that we're going to see the effects of in a few decades' time. Yeah, I think so. I still see a lot of enthusiasm with really young kids, but I think certainly in the teenage years, we find there's a massive drop-off. You know, we get a lot of kids that come into the shop from very young up to the age of maybe 10 or 12, super enthusiastic. That's their place they want to be on a Saturday afternoon. And then a lot of them kind of disappear. And then they start to reappear around the maybe 18, 19. And obviously it's not everybody, but it is more of a rule at the moment, which is a shame. Yeah, definitely. But maybe it'll swing back again. We have to hope so. I'm cautiously optimistic. I think that we're finding, obviously, with the general 
theme of people returning to books as a whole, when I say people, I mean everybody of every age, mm. having had the appearance of the e-reader some time back, I'm kind of hoping that that trend will continue and feed back into young people at some point. What was the first book you remember reading? It was such a powerful memory. I was kept in a break while the others were sent out because it wasn't really curriculum. It wasn't what we were supposed to be doing as little ones at that point. And um, we read uh, something called Tip and Mitten, which was part of a reading scheme, sort of pre-Peter and Jane sort of thing. And it was just delightful. The teacher let me write down which page I'd got to, but I hadn't learned to write numbers. (laughs) So she'd written down page eight, but I tried to copy it and made two very bad circles. And my handwriting's never really improved since, to be fair. (laughs) But it was absolutely amazing, just really exciting to be able to decode what was on the page. And was that the excitement of actually reading itself or were you really excited about the story as well? Do you know, the story wasn't that great, I have to be fair. It was more the power of having access to the words. It was that decoding. It was that being able to read and understand those symbols that was very exciting. Yeah, and it's really interesting. I mean, how old must you have been at that time? I was trying to think about that. I think four Yeah, so that's really young and it's a really strong memory you've got of that age. Yeah, and it influenced how I managed things with my own kids as well because I then, though it was not the done thing, I taught them with flashcards too. And we had a little TARDIS post box and I used to make the flashcards and every time they got one right, we posted it in and then started them on reading scheme books. So actually both of mine were competent readers before they went to school and have always been addicted readers, both of them, which is really lucky for me because I see a lot of parents in despair. They themselves, passionate readers, really wanting their kids to be excited about reading too. Yeah, we see that quite a lot in the shop and it's what we do with parents in that situation is just try to work really hard with them to find the book that works. Mm. We did an author event. When we were doing author events (laughs) at a local school and the author was talking to kids about what they did if they didn't like something on Netflix Hmm. and the kids all just said well we just changed the channel and find something else and he was like well have you thought about doing that with books Hmm. and you could see the recognition in their face they were like oh I suppose I could do that and I think that's the mindset isn't it if you've got a kid that isn't grabbed by a book it's finding the books that then work for them yeah definitely and also good stories are exciting in whatever medium so part of my work when I'm working with reluctant readers as patron of reading is to try and bring them on board with the fact that you're a story lover, not necessarily a book lover. And there's a lot of benefits to being a book person. You know, you can carry it with you. It doesn't run out of batteries. You can read it at your own pace in your own time. You can make your own images and so on. So it's in many ways less limiting than you know a Netflix series. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the things I really liked about your series of books is that it appeals to everybody. And I think books that we recommend to children do well when they don't try and pigeonhole kids into something. Oh, for girls, you must be pink and like fairies. And for boys, you must like soldiers and, and cars and stuff. So there's definitely a set of books that we will go to as booksellers and go, these are the books that we think the kids should be reading because they they are likely to capture their imagination. And that's so important in kids' literature, isn't it? Well, definitely. And obviously that was a major thing for me when I was negotiating with OUP about what Warrior Monkeys would be like as a series and the characters and so on. You know, as a commissioned author, you don't have that same say over everything that somebody that just starts by themselves would do. So obviously there's a lot of benefits in being a commissioned author for a publisher. But in other ways, there's quite a lot of writing by committee in some ways. Like if I want to, 
I mean, spoilers, there's one character in book two that dies and that had to go through a couple of levels of committee meetings just to make sure that it wasn't really traumatizing anybody. And with the gender balance, I said right from the off, I can write it like this because the original plan was two male monkeys and quite a male dominated scenario. But I feel quite strongly that that would be a, a missed opportunity because here we're writing for seven, eight-year-olds at that age when it's so important to, to kind of build good role models for either gender. And so we do have a sensitive male character. He's somewhat on the autistic spectrum also, which is important in terms of the way that he experiences groups. He's been bullied as well. So that's something that is the experience of too many children on the autistic spectrum. And then obviously Suki, our female character, she's the adventurous, boisterous, always getting into trouble sort of character um, that I think a lot of girls would like to have at that age without feeling limited by being a princess. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've definitely seen that when we come to schools with you. Because um, <laughs> when you do your demonstrations and you get kids up, there's always so much enthusiasm from both little boys and little girls, and it's brilliant. Let's go back to you. Talking about the present day, you live in Abingdon. And as I said in my introduction, you've got loads of stuff going on. Work is an array of different activities, but you were formerly a school teacher, as you mentioned. Yeah. When did you make the change from being a school teacher to what you're doing now? Oh, well, I've done that twice, actually. I was first a school teacher after I finished my degree. And then I stopped when I had my kids. And I trained as a martial arts instructor at that time, which was a really fantastic experience. And I did that for many years. And then there was a combination of circumstances and some very bad business decisions that took me out of that world again. And then I went back into school teaching before I was a history teacher and this time as an English teacher. So really got up close and personal with some of the issues with disaffected readers and how English in schools is taught these days. I had very happy memories of English at school myself. And then going back into that and finding how that had changed was quite scary, really, because there's, you know, obviously so much more curriculum and so much less freedom Mm -hmm. than there had been and then luckily for me I had the opportunity of hopping out again it sounds like I'm going backwards and forwards but there's a lot of years in between these things and going back into teaching martial arts which is really my purpose in life I think because teaching martial arts is about teaching everything and really helping students recognize their own potential and and build for themselves so I think if they become well trained in martial arts then they can access pretty much anything they want to do in life So that's less limiting than teaching a particular subject, I think. And you don't just do things here in the UK. You work with students over in India as well, don't you? Yes, although currently on Zoom because of the pandemic. I'm trying to listen to how many times a day at the moment we hear because of the pandemic (laughs) in any conversation. So that's my second today, I think. So I work for a charity called Fair Fight, an NGO based in the Netherlands, but we have projects empowering young women in Zimbabwe and in India. And I have various different aspects to my work in India. I'm a project manager for them over there. Some of that is working with young girls who live in a safe house and they have an ongoing karate project, which is brilliant for helping these girls. They've come from backgrounds of extreme poverty and their parents can't afford to feed and educate them properly. So India, particularly Uttar Pradesh, is basically the most dangerous place in the whole world to be a woman. There's horrific incidents of abuse and rape and domestic violence. And although there is quite a lot of momentum for change, 
part of my work then is to support that change inside the community in different ways. So one project is to work with sick form age girls to help them develop good deterrent behaviours so that once they get into university, they're safer because that is a dangerous environment for them. So working on situational awareness and threat assessments. I work with one group that champions rape survivors and survivors of acid attacks and other horrendous assaults. And I help to train their trainers because they go into the slums and they target women and children and try to, again, teach them some basic self-defense skills and some survival behaviors, because unfortunately, those are very much necessary. Wow. And doing that over Zoom is really challenging, you know, at the end of a fragile internet connection. And some of these girls that are trainers are working in agriculture. They're doing their best inside their communities and they're subsistence living some people or they're they're under difficult circumstances themselves. And then we're working through a translator on a dodgy connection. But you know what? It's working and it's incredible still to be able to do something. So I'm very grateful for what the internet can offer us and people's resilience and teamwork and commitment is great. Yeah, I think COVID's been awful and continues to be awful, but I think there are certain things that have come out of it. We've all suddenly got a new appreciation for technology. I mean, you and I today are in separate rooms and boiling this over an internet connection, but also just, I think, people kind of pulling together in that sense of community. We've certainly seen that time and time again over the last few months. Definitely. The martial arts community has been amazing in terms of how the network has shared ideas so that people can keep training. And it's really smashed down a lot of barriers. So yes, I can continue to work in India and I can consult with a trauma specialist in Canada. And I'm in, in a few weeks time, I'm doing a self-protection workshop for a school in Japan. Wow. And none of that would have happened before. It's always good to, to look at the positives as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, you're dealing with all of that, you're working, your book's just about to come out. We're doing your launch on the 7th of November. Are you managing to find much time for yourself? Are you reading much at the moment? Well, that's a good question. So I read a lot for work because I feel it's my responsibility to be as clued up as I can be. I took a BTEC this year in self-protection training as well. There's a fantastic area of karate and self-protection writing that is a very exciting area to read. So I read a lot for work, but I also belong to a book club, which is really positive because it, it makes me at least once a month read something that I wouldn't otherwise be reading because before I would devour fiction constantly and now that sort of gets pushed aside for work reading and so yeah book club is brilliant and you know you're at the mercy of somebody else's choices which can go either way yeah I was gonna say sometimes it can be good sometimes not so good what was the last book you read so the last book I read was for book club and it was Lauren Wilkinson American Spy which was an easier read sometimes my book club like they like to go hefty they like to choose prize winners I'm going to send this recording to the book club afterwards. And I want Annie to know I still haven't forgiven her for the Chairman Mao biography. (laughs) 900 pages of intense Chinese history, from which I learned a lot. And and that's the thing is you always learn something. Even if you don't like the book, it's always interesting to talk about why you don't like it, which is obviously one of the cool things about book club. But American Spy was a much lighter read, but really, really brilliant, I thought, in that it's um I don't know are you familiar with it I've heard of it I know the synopsis but I haven't read it okay well I read it really really quickly because I was horrendously busy and in a way that was good because immediately you get the impressions and so I, I hadn't even read the back cover so it only took me a few pages 
to know that the protagonist was black, even though she didn't say it, mm-hmm. because of the way that she had to deal with the police in the first incident of what happened in the book, uh, in which she was entirely innocent. So that was really clever writing. Mm-hmm. I found that it's a really masterly show-don't-tell book. She's an FBI agent and she is a mother. She stands on some Lego when she's about to have to... This is not too much spoilers because it's in the beginning of the book, but there's an, an invader in the house and she has to protect the family and she ends up like standing on Lego, which is just so relatable, but also so not how you kind of see your FBI agent behaving. <laughs> And the whole book is a letter to her children. So that's always an interesting pivot. Not everybody liked it because it isn't a very conventional spy thriller. And we do like a good spy thriller. But I think it's a really clever piece of writing. Yeah, it sounded really interesting. Are you someone who has to read one book for pleasure rather than your workbooks one at a time? Or can you mix and match and read them concurrently? Oh, you see, this is where I fall out with my daughter who who likes to have like sort of four or five books on the go at one time. And that just does my head in. No, I'm definitely a, a read it and finish it. And it was quite a long time before I was capable of not finishing a book that I wasn't enjoying. You know, you sort of feel like you're just going to push on through anyway. But now I've become a little bit more precious with my time. It's funny that must have come up on at least three episodes now. It really divides opinion as to whether or not that's something that should or shouldn't be done. Yeah, because, you know, it might get better. I criminally ditched the second half of Overstory recently because despite the fact that people I really respect loved it and said it was fantastic, I just got fed up with it. Sometimes it doesn't work for you, but it works for others. Indeed. So I've got a theory, um, and I'm always interested in hearing from people because my theory is that I think that everybody has got a book that has had a major impact on them on one way or another. That could be professionally, it could be personally, and it might not be a majorly significant book, but I think everyone's got one do you have one of those books and if so what is it right so you did pass this question in advance which was just as well because it would have completely floored me I think actually do you remember we were at a book event and a child asked me what was my favorite book and my brain just completely yawed so this obviously isn't favorite book it's a book that was significant in my life and you could make the argument for so many books and I discussed this with some of my friends as well because all books sort of maybe change you one way or another, or they should. Mm -hmm. But when I really thought about it objectively, there was only one possible answer. And that was Richard Dawkins' God Delusion, which changed my life in a way that I hadn't at all anticipated. And I'm still kind of angry about really. So how did it change your life? Well, I I sort of fell into it by mistake. Well, not by mistake, but so I, I mentioned that my first degree was history. And so I like to read all the sources and, you know, come to my own opinion. And I was reading, I've always been a Darren Brown fan. I was reading uh, Tricks of the Mind, which is a brilliant book, highly recommend it. And towards the end of it, he chronicles part of his personal journey from losing his Christian faith. Now, I was um, born and brought up a Catholic in that very lovely primary school that I was talking about with lots of huggy nuns and and warmth and um, compassion and had always had that as a, an important part of my identity. And I was quite disturbed, really, by reading this account from Darren Brown. Um, he hadn't been a Catholic, he'd been quite an evangelical Christian. And I was interested by what had caused this change. So I sort of followed his reading recommendations from the book, and I read The God Delusion. Um, and part of me kind of wishes that that I never had. But then obviously, 
also that's not really being a grown-up is it you kind of need to face facts I started off reading it just basically assuming that that nothing in it was going to make any difference to me but I just you know wanted to see what the arguments were why it had affected him and I found myself sort of scientifically unable to disprove anything that you know and obviously it's a matter of faith not science so that's sort of irrelevant Mm -hmm. but then I thought well there must be a wealth of literature putting this down from the religious side so once I'd finished reading it I then went looking for counter arguments and actually sitting here in my conservatory I've got stacks of books that I got on either side Hahn and Wicker here answering the new atheism and then going through yeah, new atheism and books against that for and against and unfortunately for me it sort of led me through lots and lots of reading that led me to to lose faith completely and to become a very sort of reluctant kicking and screaming atheist because once once you don't believe in santa once you don't believe in fairies once you know things have changed fundamentally in your belief system you can't really go back. Mm-hmm. And I'd always been the sort of person, I loved the footprints poem about, you know, oh, in the difficult times of my life, there's only one set of footprints and, oh, that's because I was carrying you. And I'd always had that warmth, security, real blanket of faith that everything would be okay and that everything happens for a reason. And and having that taken away was really brutal and very, very much life-changing, I think. Yeah, I can't imagine. How, what kind of time period did that take? Was it something that happened fairly instantly once you started to read the counter-arguments or is it over you know, months, years? Definitely not years. It was a period of months and it was a difficult time in my life anyway. It was not long after the breakup of my marriage. And so I guess it, it was hitting me at a time when it was quite an emotional time anyway. So that made it even worse. It was definitely, it, there was a lot of grief involved in that because I was losing the the stability and the comfort and the security that goes with a strong faith. And I still sometimes now look at people that have that faith and I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm envious of that. But like I say, once you've, once you've let go of it, you, you're not going to get it back. I remember talking about this with a, uh, with a close friend who, because she'd kind of been with me alongside the whole journey and seen how much I'd agonized over it. And she said, when it comes down to it, it does get to be simple. It's, do you believe it or do you not believe it anymore? Because at some point you move from a position of the one to the other. And I was like, yeah, I, I have. I've crossed, I've crossed the line. So, yeah, and that meant a whole like way of life that I lost. I used to play music in the like folk group in the church and I was part of a church community and there was various important priests that I'd had as mentors over my life. Yeah, and so that was a a very isolating thing in in so many ways but at the same time I felt that it was right and you know I obviously still do Mm. it's just but that just is quite incredible isn't it because obviously it wasn't the book that changed your mind but it was the book that triggered a thought process that then sent you on a kind of a path of exploration I guess yeah I mean, in that sense, I suppose the Darren Brown should be the the book that is the one that triggered it. But I guess it's also important in terms of, we see an awful lot at the moment of people running off with their conspiracy theories one way or the other. I, I hadn't at all expected to be caught out by 
doing a lot of research on both sides and coming to a different opinion. Mm-hmm. In my, I have to say, smugness, I really believe that, that my faith was robust enough to go through anything and that it was going to be impervious to any arguments that atheists could throw at it. It's a brave decision to actually look at that in such detail because although, like you say, you did it with the view that you thought you were going to be able to prove your own theory, mm. but then to open yourself up to the fact that actually maybe what you thought for a long time wasn't actually what you were going to end up believing, is it's a big deal. It took a long time to get my head around it. It really did. I mean, that's many years in the past now, so I'm much more peaceful about that. But my answer to everything has always been to research it. Mm-hmm. You know, any time that I've come across anything difficult or challenging it's always been well you know let's find out what the experts think and let's find you know second opinions and look at the counter arguments and so on so it was just a you know a formula that I've always used which has been really beneficial in most ways it it just I didn't expect it to backfire on me in the same way but that's more than 10 years ago now I think so it's now become part of my identity in a way that I'm comfortable with that book is still very much in print there and still very much in circulation so uh, lots of people mm. clearly reading of the same view. Interesting. Yes. Um, what book do you think everyone should read? Well, all of the books, <laughs> clearly. For me, a really important book um, that I think everyone should read is The Gift of Fear by Gavin De Becker. So this comes back to my work, but also my own personal experience as well. Are you familiar with it? I hadn't heard of it until you told me about it now. Excellent. Well, then it will be something that hopefully you'll be able to dish out in the shop to a lot of people because it's a a very important book. It's a a kind of a a very key text in the self-defence community, although it's more kind of widely popular than that. I might be wrong, but Oprah Winfrey is a big Gavin De Becker fan, so it's featured a lot on her show in the past. The basic premise of the book is that we should listen to our instincts but it helps you to identify and interpret what's going on with your instincts. Mm -hmm. And if people read it, it will save them a huge amount of trouble not getting involved with people that are going to bring toxic or abusive relationships into their life. Uh, Even sort of mildly, you know, work relationships, friendships and so on. It's not just about sort of stalker and predator relationships, although that is a key part of it. But it it also really helps you identify red flags in relationships that you do have. So sometimes you might have conversations that make you feel a little bit confused or uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. or you might feel somewhat frustrated or misunderstood. And this book is dynamite for helping you unpick those transactions and seeing what happens. Okay. When you told me about it, I did look it up and I did think it sounded pretty fascinating. We'll certainly be getting a copy into the shop. Excellent. Well, I mean, for example, one of the most famous parts of it are the seven pre-incident indicators, which are, again, red flags that you can see. So when I talk to um, women who have been through abuse, their eyes suddenly, they get this light bulb moment. They go, oh, my God. Yes, that is a thing that happened. So not only in the sort of street sense of, you know, you're having a conversation with somebody and it might turn into something dangerous, Mm -hmm. but in the relationships that you already do have. So ways that you're being manipulated. So, for example, like disregarding no is one of the most important things. Somebody who won't take no for an answer, it's usually a sign that they're trying to control you because, you know, no should be a complete sentence Mm -hmm. and that's okay. 
so it's very empowering in looking at those different elements and helping you health check the relationships that you're in. It sounds brilliant. I'm slightly obsessed with psychology anyway. Um, and oh, good. <laughs> I studied it at A-level and never really followed it on, but there are certain theories that have stuck in my head. But every now and again, I'll dip into something around that space because I think there's a lot of things that we could all do with knowing about. When I'm working with teenagers, I often like to draw on I'm okay, you're okay, and teach them basic transactional analysis, because teenagers often end up in this very negative relationship with their parents, where they kind of regress, and they're like, oh, you're being unfair, or whatever, and then the parents get really critical, and so a lot of my work is with teenagers, and a lot for them is about demonstrating that they can be trusted, showing responsibility, so trying to, if they understand the difference between staying you know in that terms of theory i know it's not a perfect theory but no theory is perfect Mm -hmm. but that model of trying to behave like an adult as opposed to like a parent or a child and really trying to own their behavior and remain calm so when a parent speaks to a child in a very critical way a teenager particularly that can be quite humiliating they feel like they're older and more deserving of respect and it's a respect they haven't earned yet and all the rest mm-hmm. of that there's so many reasons why that can happen but you know the whole process of parenting teenagers is something i've got <laughs> i've got a ton of notes in my phone about a book that i'd like to write about around that area but really for, for teenagers to learn that actually they can develop responsibility and demonstrate that they can be trusted and earn privileges through their own behavior by moderating how they speak to their parents and how they behave in the house as opposed to waiting for their parents to recognize that in them is really is really good and that's something that obviously we're sort of doing this through the medium of martial arts which is all about trying to develop your own potential it's a really effective way for teenagers to become more powerful and also better citizens Mm. i'm okay you're okay I'm okay. You're okay. Yeah. Thomas Harris, very old book. And I'm sure that all the psychological theories of it have been trampled on since then, but still has a useful model that people can access and discuss really easily, which is nice. Yeah. Something that's relatable. Yes. So going back to your book, because we Mm. really should talk a little bit more about your book. Okay. (laughs) So it's the third in the series of your Warrior Monkeys series. It's being published on the 5th of November. Yes. And you're doing an online launch Mm. on the 7th of November. Obviously, given the restrictions of COVID, this is going to be quite different to when you've launched previous books, when you've travelled to schools and done demonstrations in workshops and various different places. How are you feeling about that? How are you dealing with the, the change in approach? Well, do you know what? It's really exciting because in the same way that we were talking about earlier, what seemed before to be a problem has now become something which is actually to be celebrated. In my books, I use characters from real life, but, you know, adapted somewhat, of course, and <laughs> turned into talking monkeys, which doesn't, doesn't always go down well with people. So for this launch, we're able to have some of those characters come in and be interviewed on Zoom, even though they're in different parts of the country and, in fact, out of the country. So one of my Fair Fight colleagues, a chap called Guy, lives in the Netherlands, and he is now, what's the right term, a neurologist, but sort of academic neurologist, but also a martial artist. And one of the things that being on project with him was hilarious, that we could always tell where he was. Well, no, we could always tell he was around because he has a very, very deep voice. But like the Kakapo in 
Douglas Adams' last chance to see. His voice is so deep that you can't really identify the direction the sound is coming from. <laughs> so Guy likes to talk a lot. So you could always tell that he was around, but you couldn't quite kind of hone in where he was. And as a group, we started to find this quite funny. And at that time, I was just bringing together ideas for the third book. And we decided it would be quite funny to put him in as a character. And he and one of my Norwegian friends on the project, a chap called Harold, they're both a little bit bonkers in that they are really into that ice bath thing, you know, break the ice, bathe in the lake and oh. come out invigorated. No. I know, but it just was really funny hearing them talk about it. And I just thought it would be really fun to put that into a book. And we knew that the Warrior Monkeys 3, I just really wanted to have some fun with it. And I really wanted to put in a quest because that's so important for any series of um, martial arts books. You've got to have a quest. Mm -hmm. So we, ha we had a quest and we had some pirates. Anyway, so we decided that we were going to put Guy into the book. And as a group, we decided that we had to choose what animal he was going to be. And my friend Moi, who's our local translator in Varanasi, she was the one that hit on it. She said he has to be a yeti. And I was like, oh, my goodness. How perfect is that? Like in the second book, I got to put quicksand in, which as a trope, I've always liked that. And then, you know, the first book was all about the volcano and like volcano lore and that kind of thing is always. That's the fun thing about being a writer, isn't it? Especially a children's writer. Although, as, as you know, the volcano itself was quite an epic thing to research to try and make that work because although we're in a world of talking monkeys we still want it to be geographically okay <laughs> so he's in there as a yeti and, and so he's going to come in from the netherlands and do a little talk about breathing exercises which will be really fun and then my dear mentor stephen chan who is professor of everything at soas in london and a 10th dan martial artist who is basically yoda and he's the one that needs to be rescued in this book. Uh, he's going to come in and answer some reader questions. So I'm really delighted that, he, that he's able to do that as well. And then also uh, my Suki monkey is going to come and do some demonstrations. We're going to do some weaponry work. And we've got other kids that are going to come in and show off some of their stuff. Because what we've done is we've, we've taken on a hall with some where we can Zoom so we can socially distanced and still do some martial arts demonstrations and then I've got lots of things that like people that come along if they want to and they don't have to I've got some activities that they can participate in as well so actually I think we can have a brilliant launch I think it's going to be really fun yeah it is it's going to be really good just the thought of bringing everyone together for you know you wouldn't have been able to make that happen would you if it had been in person realistically no not at all so now the book's about to be released. Obviously, you've got that to deal with. But then what's next in, in terms of writing? What's on your what's on the agenda next? Well, that, that's the series done um, in terms of Warrior Monkeys. So for me, the main purpose of what I'm doing is my own martial arts school and, and my work in India for Fair Fight. So those are really important things that obviously take up a huge amount of my time. Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, I would like to be writing. I've got a bit of a how-to navigate being a teenager book in my head and there's it's been done before I know it's been done before so many times but I don't think it's been done exactly the way that I'd like to write it so you never know that would be something that I like to do but I haven't got any more fiction on the horizon at the moment but it is something that I loved doing I really enjoyed doing it so you never know maybe something else will come up yeah, watch the space. And in the meantime, we're looking forward to having your new book on our shelves and to getting it into the hands of our readers. 
Mary, it's just been so lovely talking to you today. The time's just flown and it's been so interesting hearing about all the different things you're involved with. Thank you so much for joining me. Not at all. Thank you so much for letting me ramble on about books that I love, which is a great thing to do. 